Right, tonight we're going to be in the 50th chapter, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah's name means salvations in the Lord. We're looking at this section because it is a revelation, it is a, a presentation of the Messiah. It's interesting that the Messiah name really isn't used much in this particular section. Later on it will be, but here he's called the servant, but he's the one who is the deliverer, and it's the presentation of that. It is the revelation that we want to see. It tells us about how God has provided salvation and how we have to respond to that salvation. So let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer as we look at this section. While we come before you again and ask for that spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of the Lord, we thank you for your word given to us. We thank you, the voice of the Spirit, empowering that word. And we're coming and asking you for that tonight. And we're asking you to move us to that place of response, which will honor and glorify your name. So we're trusting you for that. And we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in chapter 50. We're going to go through the entire chapter tonight. We're going to have the another, the third of four presentations, four references to this man who they, he calls in this book the servant, my servant. We saw that in the first section. We saw it at the very beginning of this this particular section. We talked about it a little bit last week, and actually, this passage that we're talking about tonight grows out of what we talked about last week. It's a continuation of that same message. In the middle of chapter 49, verse 14, God, personifying the nation of Israel, says, this is the way you're looking at things. And at this point, he is talking about the way they believe about themselves during the time that they're in captivity. And here's what it says. But Zion, that's Israel, said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord, that is Jehovah, has forgotten me. I've been forgotten. I've been forsaken. I mean, forsaken is a strong word. That means he gave up completely. He has put them behind. Is that's what you're saying in your heart. Now, one of the main points of the book of Isaiah is this. It is always time to seek the Lord. It is always time to seek the Lord. That there is never a time when you are in a place, as long as you're on this earth, when if you turn to God, you won't find salvation. That's hard, and there, there's something in the heart of man that, that tends to, to argue against that. And we're going to see that once again tonight. So in response to that, <clears throat> the writer, again, Isaiah, speaks at the first verse of the book, of, or of chapter 50. Thus says the Lord, <clears throat> where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Now, he's using a picture of, where is it? How is it that I have divorced you? Show me the certificate. Now, this takes you back to culture of the Old Testament. In the, in the law, a man did have the, the right, if things weren't going well in his marriage, to write out a certificate and say, I am, I am officially breaking my relationship with this woman. At that point, she was free to remarry. Right? That's the way it goes. But the law also said this, if she remarried, the man who wrote out the divorce could never, 
remarry that woman. But there was no possibility. If her husband dies, she still isn't available. Once he writes this certificate of divorce, the separation between that man and his wife is permanent. So the Lord's picking up the that thought. And he's looking at the nation which has said, now you have forsaken me. He said, well, where is the certificate of divorce? Where is it? Where did you see me write out and say that I'm cutting you off? Right. Then he uses a second picture. So that's the first one. Now, that's why on, in your outline it, it doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? But it is a word of encouragement. Because there is a there is a strong tendency in the human heart which is separated from God to believe that something I have done, something I have been, some way I have acted, has put a separation, a permanent separation between God and myself. That is not so. That is not so. And that's part of what the, the force of this passage is. No matter how far you've gone into problems, into sin, no matter what is there, when I am ready to turn to God, He is ready to hear me. And it's my responsibility to do so. So the second thing he says this, or <clears throat> to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Right? Which one of my creditors did I sell you? Now again, this takes us back to a, a very much Old Testament situation. A man in that day, if he was in debt and could not pay it, what is he could take his children and sell them as slaves to someone if he couldn't pay the debt. Terrible thing, but that that was part of the culture. That's what he's speaking about. So which one, where was I in debt? That's what he's saying. Where is the living God in debt to someone where I had to give you up into slavery? And of course, that's ridiculous. God is no man's debtor. There is no one in this earth, and particularly the Babylonians. There was no way that they had any hold on him that forced him to somehow do this. He's saying, the separation that exists is what he's saying here between you and me, between God and Israel, is completely on your side. It is not because I rejected you. It's because you have rejected me. You have walked away from the relationship. This is very similar in thought to what James says in the New Testament. He says this, anyone who wants to be the friend of the world, right? if you want to be friends with the system which is governed by this, this world, this world system apart from God, if you want to be its friend, the person who does that makes himself the enemy of God. It's the same thought here, that God is not rejecting him. He's rejecting God and putting a separation, and that's what he goes on to say here. Behold, you were sold for your iniquities. And he's he's not saying that there was a creditor. He just said, you are in the situation you're in because of your iniquities. Your mother was put away because of her sin. She walked away because of that sin. That's a word of encouragement because the encouragement is this. There is a way back. And what is that way? Now, in speaking about that, he then reminds them of their situation. <clears throat> Why was there no man when I came? Now, and again, let me just read through the next part here. It says, when I called, why was there none to answer? 
right? And God had come. One of the more interesting features, again, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, if you're not, I'm going to tell you. As you move towards those days when the people of God are put into this judgment in captivity, God flooded the place with prophets. I used to make, in Old Testament survey, make the students make a timeline of the Old Testament and stick the prophets on there. Because if you, if you see it on an actual timeline, this impresses you. But the prophets of the Old Testament aren't really in a sort of a, a continuous run. They are grouped around two tragedies. Most of the writing prophets of the Old Testament came either when the northern, capti- or, uh, the northern kingdom went into captivity and most of them when the southern captive, or, uh, people or the southern kingdom went into captivity. See, at that particular time, right before they are about to go into that captivity, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Habakkuk and Zephaniah are all there speaking to them. Just before they go into captivity, just a few years before that, there is a good king, Josiah. And that good king, Josiah, stood for God. And called the nation to come back. They did in a superficial way, but not in a, in a heart way. You see, it wasn't as if when they went into the captivity, God had deserted them and left them in the darkness. He was speaking to them over and over and over again. And so he asked the question to him. You're in, you're blaming me. You're saying I cut you off. It is a funny thing, isn't it? How we refuse to hear what God says. We won't listen to it. We don't pay any attention to it. We get in trouble and they say, God's deserted me. He's failed me. God's failed you. This is real important in the whole passage, so keep with me on that one. All right? Because not only does men come, but then he says this to us. Verse, this is probably one of the better known uh, parts of this whole thing. Is my hand so short that it can't save? Now, again, that's an, that is an Old Testament idiom, all right? Um, it would be as if you said, you know, I need $10,000. Can you help me? Well, if you come to me and ask for $10,000, no, I can't help you. And if you're using the idiom, my arm isn't that long. My arm isn't that long. It can't stretch out that far. Does that make sense? That's, a, that's, that's the idiom. Now, God says this. He's speaking to the nation. When I came and spoke to you, is my hand, is there ever a place where my hand is too short to save? And then he uses, then he puts it in straightforward language right after that. Or have I no power to deliver? Is there ever a time, a situation you can get into or I could get into or they got into where God couldn't do something about it? So now he says two things. And he's going to refer to the, to the, time when he went and got them out of kept out of Egypt he says I've spoke to you and I had all the power in the world to come and meet you and you're in trouble you're in trouble because you rejected my word <clears throat> that's the that's the preliminary all right now we're on the second page all right think I'll be done at 7:30 now I won't I won't all right Looks like I'm going that fast, but I'm not going to get there. Because then the Lord uses this. Out of that, Isaiah suddenly looks forward 
and sees how God is ultimately going to deal with this whole thing. And the servant speaks. All right? The servant speaks. Verse 4. The Lord has given me the tongue of disciples. The tongue of disciples here, it's, that's, a, that's a strange look. It's another one of those idioms. Doesn't make any difference to any. Doesn't mean anything to us. The tongue of a disciple of disciples is not a person who is a disciple. It says he has given me a capacity to teach other people. He has given me wisdom to be able to speak to people about their need and to help them. All right. He has given me a capacity to speak which will enable people to actually respond and find blessing. Because what he says here, um, that I may know how to sustain the weary one, or the weary one with a word. That I might know how to do that. God gave it to me. Now again, as we're going through this, remember this is 700 years before the Lord appeared. It is hard for those of us that have been through the Gospels over and over again not to read it and hear the Gospel. What was a, when Jesus got up to speak, right? He's never been to seminary. He has no credentials. This is when we're going, we're moving to the New Testament now. He has no credentials. He's just, he's, he's, he's a guy from, of all places, Canaan, Galilee. He's, he's way out there. And he got up to speak. And what did the people say about him? Immediately. Immediately there was the testimony that that man has authority. He speaks with authority, not like the scribes who are just talking, talking, talking. But there is something in the way he speaks. There is something in the words that he says that carries weight with it. If you have never read through the the New Testament, I would challenge you just to read it and let that fact Hit your heart. There is something about the what the words that Jesus gives that have capacity to do things for you that you aren't going to find anywhere else. And this thought is repeated again over and over again in the New Testament. When we read that fact that he was able, because of that, that voice, to help the weary. Uh, again, I'm just coming up with thoughts that get there, but come unto me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm the teacher. Learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. Think of another passage. The thief comes only but to rob and kill and destroy. But I've come that they might have life and have have it more abundantly. The words I speak to you, he says, they are what? They are spirit and they are life. They're spirit and they're life. I am, and this would be an important one here for the, the rest of the thing, I am the light of the world. And that light would come to us both by how Jesus lived and by what he has to say. The Father has given to me, that God has given to me the tongue of a disciple, or the tongue of disciples. He has given this to me. Later on, He will say it this way. Later in the, in the book, in another passage, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel. He's anointed me to bring the good news to people. 
that's what he would be out ahead. That's the Lord that we serve. And again, this is, just look at this. This is, this is 700 years before, and yet it, it lines up completely. Now, he speaks about himself. He says, I can sustain the weary one with a word, but he says, he awakens me in the morning. That's the Lord, that's the Lord God, who wakens me in the morning. He wakens, uh, he wakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear. That was an interesting picture. Here's a picture of the Lord. Last week we were talking about this, and I want to continue with that. See, the thought here is that every morning when Jesus gets up, this is the way the, the writer is putting it, God woke him up. All right? So that, you know, I don't know who got you up when you were a little kid. I don't get, didn't get up on my own. All right? Somebody shook me every morning, and it was usually my mother. Time to get up. So the very first thing I saw every morning was mom. Hi, mom. <laughs> All right. Now, the picture here is that Jesus, every morning when he is awakened, is not when he wakes up, when he is awakened, he is awakened by God himself. But unlike my mother who said, get up and left me to take care of things, the thought is that there he immediately was in the presence of his father, and in that presence his father had something to say. Because he says that he awakens me, but he also gives me the ear of a disciple. And the Lord God has opened my ear. Now, students, they can laugh at me on this one, all right? I have continuous trouble with my ears getting plugged up. It's cold season. Cold season and deafness go together for me, all right? And I'm recovering right now from that thought. Then, you know, okay, again, this, that's on the side. But here's the point. There will come a moment, I hope it's not in the too distant future, when all of a sudden, it's, it's all inside my head someplace, when it will suddenly move. Sometimes it happens on an airplane, you know, and all of a sudden, it, oh, I can hear again. You know, you're hearing all kinds of noises that you haven't heard for a long time. In fact, it sounds kind of painful when all that noise hits your eardrum. And you begin to get it. It could be the other direction. You might have been in a place where you have had your uh, weird ears packed up with wax, and you just and then somebody goes in. The doctor comes in and says, "Oh, you got some wax in there." Takes it out and he says, "Whoa, whoa! I can hear again. You can hear exactly what's going on. You can hear clearly what's going on. All right. Now that 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 thought that your ears are open." Is again, it's another idiom. It's another, it's another picture. But it says, he's saying that God has done something for me so that I can clearly understand exactly what He has said. He's done this for me. And He does it every morning. What a picture for the Lord. Because the Lord had to figure out who He was from reading the Word of God and having the illumination of the Spirit of God. That's how he. That's how he gets there. All right. Now again, I admit there's some parts of it. The angel spoke to his mother, and again through that, it's still a revelation that it got there. But he has to read this, and as he reads this, he finds out who he is, and he grew because in him there was nothing resistant. There was nothing saying no. 
Because he says, he's given me the ear of a disciple. That is one who can hear clearly what is said and is wholeheartedly ready to do what I'm asked to do. Now, that, that would give you a joyous experience, wouldn't it? Oops, that's not the right page. There, there, we, go, there we go. Okay, a joyous experience. You would think that that would be, mean that he would just have all of good things before. In verse 5, it says, The Lord God has opened my ear. He looked at what was there and says, And I was not disobedient. I did not turn back. All right, I was not disobedient. I didn't turn back. Now, as Jesus began to realize who he was, he was going to find out a number of things from which you and I might want to turn back. Because as he's going through that in just a few weeks, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 53. And he is going to read about what it means. He would have read Psalm 22 and found out what it's going to mean. There are a lot of other passages that are going to tell him that in the path of following his father, he was going to experience suffering. That's what the book of Philippians said. This is the greatness of our God, the humiliation that he went through. And his humiliation was this, that though he was God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He left that and he comes to this earth and he becomes a man. And as a man, he becomes a servant. And as a servant, he is completely obedient, even unto death, even the death of the cross. All right. That's that's how far his obedience would go so that as he looks at the word of God and finds out what it requires, he will hear that it is there is there are things ahead of him. All right. But he says, when I looked at it and I saw it, what did he do? He says, I was not disobedient. I did not turn back. Now, at this point, he takes us. Isaiah takes us. I don't know what Isaiah perceived. Remember, he does not have the New Testament in front of him. I do not know how much he saw at this particular time. But then in vision, in revelation from God, he is moved to the events immediately before the cross. Listen to what it has to say. I didn't turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me. My cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Now, the fulfillment of all that takes place. You can go and read it. Go back and read what happens after Jesus is arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane. And during the course of that night, before the cross, all those things will take place. Now, the plucking out of the beard... Is not literally said there. And, and the plucking out of the beard, again, it's another one of those pictures because men in the Old Testament all had beards. It was part of your manhood. When you grew up, you grew a beard. That beard was a representation of the fact that you were a real man. You remember a story that happens in the Old Testament where David sends an ambassador, a, a group of ambassadors to Ammon to work out a deal. And they tell David, take a hike. And in order to tell him to, to forget it, we're not going along with that, they humiliated his servants. And what they did was they shaved off half of his, half their beards and did some other things and sent them home. David took care of that problem. 
He dealt with it. But see, it's an act of humiliation. The plucking out of the beard means to be to be put in a place where you're humiliated. Because the beard represents the strength in the, uh, of a man. <clears throat> in a biblical sense, that's in Isaiah's in Isaiah day. But Jesus tells us something. He read what was out ahead, and as a disciple, he didn't turn his back. And then it says this, he gave his back. Again, I want to, to remind you, if you're reading through the Gospels, you must never think of Jesus in any sense of being controlled by anybody else other than his Father. He does not have to go through that experience at any moment during that the course. He tells his disciples, listen, one view to heaven, one view, and there will be enough power dispersed to this earth to deal with this problem. But why does he go through that? Because that's the hour he came to. He already knew that. He knew why he was there. And he is a real disciple. When he read the word, when he heard his father speak, he responded. Now, you've got to catch this in the passage. God's deserted us. I didn't desert you. You deserted me. And how did, he, how did the people desert him? They deserted him by not paying attention to what he said. By looking at the requirements that he put upon them, and they said no. But the, the servant comes up here and he says... He's not going to turn back from that. He literally, literally did give his back. He was beaten. What Jesus went through before the cross would have been enough to kill a lot of people. The scourging itself would have been enough to kill people. And not only was a scourging, but that night he was beaten in the face. People don't think about that part. On three different occasions... He is slapped around and beaten. He has had a crown of thorns placed upon his head. All of these things, they are acts of humiliation, people making fun. But he gave himself to it. Writer Peter, speaking about this, it's very important, says this, that when he was reviled, when this was all taking place, he didn't revile back. What did he do? He entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. And that's what he's going to say in this passage. So let's keep reading here. This is our Lord. I didn't cover my face. This is in the end of verse 6. I did not cover my face from humiliation spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I'm not disgraced. This is... It would be a disgrace, except for the fact that the Lord's with me. And this is the plan of God. All right? Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. That is literally quoted in the New Testament. There comes a moment when Jesus is on his way back to, or to Jerusalem. The, the transfiguration is behind him, and now he is making the final move. Knowing what's ahead, he has turned his face towards the city of Jerusalem, and he's moving towards it. Everybody knew what was ahead. You remember what Thomas has to say about that? Okay, well, let's go to, we'll go with him to Jerusalem that we might die with him. I mean, they all knew what was ahead. This is a disaster. That is no place to go with the mood of the nation and the mood particularly of the religious leaders. But as Jesus was walking with his, with the, disciples it's an odd moment because he steps out ahead of them he moves out into a forefront position apparently alone thinking about this and it says and he set his face like a flint he set his face he was determined 
Because he had the heart, he had the heart of a disciple. The reason he could speak to people and set them free was because he was free. The reason he could speak to the heart of men was because he was completely under the control of his father. Therefore, I'm not disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed because he who vindicates me is near. He who vindicates me is near. His father was always right there. And he will be vindicated. Again, I want to remind you again, I go over it over and over again. It's a great point to me. It's true. The cross is a great humiliation. And if, if Jesus, all we've got is a cross, then all we have is a dead person who died like a lot of other dead people died. The cross was not reserved for Jesus alone. It was the way he died, but he's not the only one who died that way. The vindication came a couple days later. The proof that he had done the right thing in submitting to his father in this, he entrusted himself into the hands of his father, right? The one who will judge righteously. And righteousness demanded that in three days he rise from the dead. Life returns. The victory is won. Death does not have a hold. Christianity rests on that event. The only reason that I'm going to get up here and say this is the confidence I have because that event took place. Without that, then all we have is platitudes. All we have is moral moral thoughts. But there's a power of a resurrection. And he said, the one who vindicates me is near. The Father never was distant from him. In those moments, the Father is right beside him. He's right beside him until the moment which this particular prophecy does not delve into. When the next step takes place and he goes to the cross, when he takes on the guilt of sin on that cross and a separation takes place. But the Father was with him. And in following the Father, he followed what his Father told him to do. This is real important to the passage. What does that have to do with the rest of us? Well, he's going back here. He started off with this question, has God forsaken his people? No, he hasn't forsaken them. They've gotten in trouble because of their refusal to listen to the word of God. The word of God that was spoken to them through prophets, through the law in the first place, and then the prophets underscoring that law to them, right? Now he goes back, and this is the third part of the, the old or the picture there. Because now God is going to say, what, what does this mean to you? You're in captivity. You're in trouble. And you're in trouble because you've sinned. Okay, you're in this deep problem. What's the right thing to do at that time? The right thing to do. This is Isaiah, the book of Isaiah from beginning to end. The right thing to do is go back to God. You're in the mess you're in because when I called you, and spoke to you, and opened your ear to hear the word, you said no. But because the servant has said yes, God can extend a message to them again to turn. It's always the right thing to do, to turn back. But here's what it will mean. It says, who among you, who is among you that fears the Lord? All right? It's not a question of who among you has sinned. Who among you is going to Reverence God for who He is at this particular point. 
Don't worry about where, where you've come from. Worry about what you're going to do at the point when you hear the Word of God. And it says this, that obeys the voice of His servant. Who's going to listen to what the servant has to say? Obeying the voice just means listening to what he said and then adjusting your life to it. See, that's what Jesus was always doing. He wasn't just memorizing Scripture. He was hearing the voice of his Father through that Scripture and he was adjusting his life to it. And that's why he would come with terrible power. I mean, it must have been something to hear him speak. A power which shook even the Pharisees who opposed him. And at their core, they are disturbed because they know it's right. But even though they know it's right, they will not submit to it. Now he says this, if you really want to, if you really want to return, obey the voice of his servant, the one who walks in darkness and has no light. All right. Now, there's the point. This is an interesting picture. He goes, he says here, you don't have light around you. You're walking in darkness. You're in a very dark place. But if you fear the Lord, listen to the word of the servant. And then, keep going here, and then let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. All right, you're in the darkness. Now, here's the right thing to do in that darkness. Listen to the servant. That's Jesus. And then entrust your life into the hands of God. And everything will be okay. Right? Got the idea there. Now, there's an alternative. This one's kind of an interesting picture. The alternative to doing that. Behold, all you who kindle a fire. Now, this is the other group. You who kindle a fire. See, you're in the darkness. What would you do in the darkness? Well, hey, they they can't get flashlights. They can't turn on the lights. There's no electricity. If you're going to have light in that particular day, what are you going to do? You're going to have to start a fire. Right? And then he says that, you who encircle yourselves with firebrands. <clears throat> it's a little bit of a difficult passage, but here's what here's the picture here. That <clears throat> this group of people, or this person, however you have it, he's in the dark. He's, in, he's scared in the dark. And so he lights a torch. And that's not enough. And so what he does is he goes around and he puts a bunch of tiki torches around him. All right? Whatever kind of torches you want to have. He puts these torches around and makes a circle. All right? And now he's in the light, right? Now he's in the midst of the darkness. He's no better off than he was before. And if you've ever, if you've ever been in that place, you realize that once you write, you get in the, the center of a group of lights, what goes on beyond that light is completely unknown to you. I mean, it cuts off. I mean, somebody can almost walk up right behind those lights and, and get you because it, you can't see out there. And he says, this is, this is what you're going to do. And he says, now, you think you're safe in this. You think you're safe. But here's what's going to happen. You're eventually going to get tired. And you're, those, those torches you have lit, they are your light. They're eventually going to go out. And when they go out and you're laying down, torment's going to come upon you. It's a statement of judgment. Let's be clear about that. God, God's going to bring torment on them. Now, both of them are in the dark, all right? Both people are in the dark. The one who trusts God is in the dark. The one who's out here is in the dark. One trusts God. He puts himself in God's hands, and he finds deliverance. The other creates all this out here. Now, what what, are we, what would that, you know, let's put that into, take it out of the picture, okay? You, nobody here is going to go out and stand around the dark with lights all around them, and that doesn't have to do with it. 
But what's he talking about? Jesus came as the light of the world, right? He came as the light of the world. What does that mean? That means he is going to bring to people an understanding of what he, what is true and what is not true. Of what is righteous living and what's unrighteous living. Of the God that's out there and how I should relate to that God. He is going to bring that to me. He is going to speak to me about that. And he is going to demonstrate by his own commitment to it that it's the right way to go. As we saw last year as we were thinking about the book of Hebrews. He is light to us in his life. He is light to us in his words. And you and I have an opportunity to hear that. We have it in our hands, that gospel. And we can orient to that. Or we can create our own lights. You've got to have somebody to tell you what to do, right? You're not going to make it up on your own. And if you're not listening to him, who are you listening to? Well, you're listening to pop stars or athletes or teachers or philosophers or television personalities or politicians or somebody. Somebody is telling you what to do and you put all this stuff around you and you think you've got it. You know, well, I'm in the light now. Now I understand. But you don't realize that it's dark right out there and you don't realize that these men are going to... This is all going to finally, it is finally going to disappear. And you go back to the very beginning of this section. Tell them this, all flesh is grass. And it's glory like the flower of the grass. And the grass withers. And the flower fades. And to use the picture from here is what? And then you lay down. Because every person... Every person in this room, every person on the face of the earth, they may think they've got it all figured out, but eventually their body is giving out, and eventually they'll lay down, and he says there's torment there. This is a gospel picture. It's a gospel picture. So how should I live? The chapter's all about how should I live. I should listen to the servant. The servant is Jesus Christ. Because he went to a cross... Because after that, giving himself to this, he gave himself to something more. That will come up in the next servant section. He will give himself to taking on my sin. He'll give himself to taking on your sin. The penalty for all those times when you knew what God was saying and you said no. He went and did that. And having done that, he also then relates to us what truth is. That's what the end of the Sermon on the Mount is, right? But I'll tell you what a wise man is like, he says. He listens to what I've said, and then he builds his house on that. He's like a man who builds his house in a rock. He listens to what I said. That's, that's good. It's good that people come and listen to the Word of God. But that really doesn't change anything. It just makes you more intelligent about the Word of God. But if your ears are open, if you have heard clearly what he has said, and you start to act on that, then you start to live like Jesus, you begin to enter into that experience of life. 
Those people were not in trouble because of their sin. They were in, in the sense of all the things they've done in the past. They are in trouble because when the eternal God came to them and said, I can completely change your experience. I can deliver you. They walked away from it. They had the light of something else, whatever it was. Whether it's an idol, whether it's just your neighbor, whether it's, again, whoever you have out there. Now, why we go through all that? Because in all these things, 700 years before it took place, God is trying to alert us to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. That I am working in that person in a unique way. And I want you to respond. And again, I would just ask you tonight as we come to this, what have you done with all that? You've heard it. Come to me, all that, that labor and heavy laden. I'll give you the rest, but you have to come. And when you come, what's he going to do? He's going to speak to you. He's going to speak to you about what he wants to do. He's going to speak to you about how your life has to change. Some are going to look at that and say, you know what? I'll stay where I am. That's what the rich young ruler does, right? He comes up there. He says, I want to know. God, Lord made it absolutely clear. He gave him a clear direction. This is what it takes. Man said, yeah, no. I don't know where he went. Then there's others who came and they listened and said, what, what is it going to take? And what they do? They followed. They built on what he had to say. Who is the Lord? He's the King. He's the Savior. Isaiah could say salvation is the Lord because of, salvation is in the Lord because of what Jesus Christ did. Read it. <clears throat> Again, if you haven't, haven't done it, read it. Listen to him. Think about him. Go to the Gospels. Let him speak to you there. And then put your life in his hands. That's what he's going to ultimately end. You're going to have to what? If you're going to listen to him, here's what you have to do. You have to entrust yourself to God. And when we entrust ourselves to God, we have to take our hands off of it. One thing about all those people that are out here, all those other lights, is they let you keep in, in control of it all. He says, take it and put it in my hands. It's a safe place to be. In a sense, you'll still be in the dark. That's why this passage has it. You still don't know everything that's going on out there, but you're safe. Because in the dark, you're in the hands of the one who doesn't darkness and light. They're the same to him. The others are in the dark and don't even know the dark because they have artificial lights. They're going to fail them. So the people, has God deserted them? No. No, he didn't desert them. He came to them in the law. He came to them again in the prophets. And now he comes to them again in the Lord Jesus Christ and invites them to come. Not, not concerned about where they've been, what they've done, but coming and asking him, now, listen to me and trust your life to me. Well, let's pray. Father, we come again to give you thanks for a message of hope and deliverance and joy and peace. And we're asking you to open our hearts, our minds, our ears to hear your word and give us the heart of a disciple to follow and know now, to know salvation. We look to you for it and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.